Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Good morning. There is nothing worse when you're about to get up to speak than someone saying you have big shoes to follow. (laughs) Nothing worse. Um, The only saving grace on my side of things is because I look about 12 years old, your level of expectation is pretty small. And even if I utter a coherent sentence, you'll be impressed. So uh, it is good to be with you. Uh, My name is Andy Prime. I've got a wife called Sarah. We've got a four-week-old baby called Ruben. Uh, which means I've had no sleep for the last four weeks. Uh, Charlie and I then had to get up at five this morning to catch our flight. And then that fry-up thing at the pit stop has pushed me over the edge. So this is nap time. My whole body is screaming that I should be asleep. So um, we're going to pray and ask for God's help. But I'll feed off your energy, all right? So if you give me eye contact and at least nod along to let me know that you're still awake, that will help the whole thing. So I'm excited to be here. I'm excited about what the Lord has uh, in store for us. This morning we're going to look at Psalm 73. So if you've got a Bible, that would be useful. Uh, I want to make sure that what you're hearing is from God's Word and is not just from my mouth. So it would be useful for you to follow along. Tomorrow morning we're then going to look in a little bit more detail at the Tenth Commandment. That will become clear after we've done Psalm 73. And then Friday morning we're going to go to the book of Proverbs and spend some time in Proverbs chapter 9. So that's the map. Happy with that? Yeah? Great. Shall I pray? Our Father in heaven, we are desperate to see the fame of the Lord Jesus Christ spread to every corner of this world. And we are grateful to you that the gospel is bearing fruit across the world. And Father, we ask that you might use our time together this morning to encourage us, to light a fire beneath us, to renew our zeal to see that gospel spread. Father, please give us not just ears that would listen, but hearts that would be eager to respond and to obey. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Psalm 73. Let's read this together. A Psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They've got no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. 
All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. And when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Till. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me... It is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Amen. Now, Asaph was a leader of the people of Israel when it came to singing. Now, we don't know what the original tune would have been to Psalm 73 when he was leading God's people in worship. You can sing a pretty sweet version of it to Eventide. Anyone sung that? Uh, which is the Abide With Me hymn. So surely the Lord is good to Israel. All right, I'll stop for the sake of my singing voice. If it was up to me in terms of putting a modern twist and putting this psalm to a new tune, I would probably suggest, uh, you know the Go Compare advert? You know the, the kind of big lad with the superb mustache and the pretty swish tuxedo who jumps in saying, Go Compare? You know that? Because what is going on in Psalm 73 is a couple of comparisons. In verses 1 to 14, we're going to look at Asaph's ill-informed comparison that leaves him slipping. But then in the second half of the psalm, verses 15 to 26, we're going to see Asaph's God-informed comparison that leaves him not slipping, but steadied. It doesn't come up in the English translations as much, but in the Hebrew, the phrase that comes up four times is this, but as for me. All right, so Asaph is making comparisons. He's saying, I saw this, but as for me, but as for me, but as for me, but as for me, four times. There's another comparison advert that was going around. It's not the tuxedo guy. It's not the meerkats. It's another one. But it was of a couple, and they were walking down a street, and sadly, they were ignorant of all the money-saving deals that were available. And all of a sudden, someone bursts into the picture and hands them a pair of glasses and saves the day because now they can see all the promotions and they can save money and they can be happy and all these things. But that's not dissimilar to what goes on in Psalm 73. In the, in the first half of the psalm, Asaph is wearing or lacking a right pair of glasses. 
because he's viewing everything from a wrong perspective, a worldly one. But then in verse 17, God jumps in the picture and says, Asaph, let me hand you a better prescription, not a worldly one, but an eternal one that is going to take you or stop you from slipping and steady your feet. So what we're going to do is look at a couple of comparisons in the psalm and see that, how that helps us think about and engage with world mission. So let me give you the first thing we're going to look at. Slipping like a senseless beast. Look at verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Asaph starts with pretty good theology. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But there's a hint in there that Asaph is he's trying to be self-persuasive in some ways. Surely God is good to Israel. Because his good theology in verse 1 is followed by a but. But, verse 2, as for me, I had almost slipped. You see, that doctrine, that truth in verse 1 becomes the battleground of the psalm. It becomes a question mark in Asaph's mind that it becomes, is God good to Israel? To those who are pure in heart. The theology of verse 1 becomes the torment of Asaph, and coming to terms with this verse is going to be like a grueling marathon for the psalmist. Because although his mouth has just said that, what his eyes then see causes his feet to almost slip. Slipping like a senseless beast. That's not me being critical of him, by the way. That's his own language in verses 21 and 22. But Asaph begins to doubt verse 1 because of verse 3. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Here's his first comparison. He looks at the wicked and they've got their hands full. Not hands full of trouble or hands full of kids or hands full of busyness at work. Just hands full of stuff, material stuff, wealth, prosperity. And he looks at them with their hands full and he looks at himself and his hands are empty. And he's got nothing. And his heart is caused to envy. The slipping of his feet caused by the envy of his heart. Now, Asaph's heart is on display in this psalm. It comes up six times. You see it in verse 1. You see it in verse 7. You see it in verse 13, verse 21. And then twice in verse 26. Asaph is not just about externally leading God's people in verbal praise. Asaph is attacking and engaging and wearing his heart upon his sleeve. His heart is in agony as he makes a comparison between the wicked and their full hands and him and his empty hands. That's useful, by the way, just to remind ourselves God doesn't just want our attendance here this morning. He doesn't just want our nods. He doesn't just want our amens or our to God be the glories from our lips. He wants to do business with your heart. And unless our hearts are engaged this morning, then this is a waste of time. True Christianity is not about external doing. It is about internal desiring. And the doing flows from the desires. 
God wants our hearts. And what we see here within Asaph is not just a stunning singing voice to lead God's people, but inside Asaph, he confesses, is a beast. There is a beast in Asaph that has green eyes. The green eyes of envy. And the beast with green eyes always seems to think that the grass is greener on the other side. See, he sees the prosperity of the wicked and he envies them. You can see the cogs turning in Asaph's mind as he looks at wickedness and thinks, do you know what? It is well paid and it is well thought of. They are fit, they are full, they are flush, they are flourishing, they are first, and they are followed. He looks at them and he thinks, albeit through rose-tinted or green-tinted glasses, that they are carefree, everything's good, and his heart turns green. And as he envies their prosperity, they, in their minds, presume an ignorance of the deity. Look at verse 11. The wicked conclude, well, if we're prospering, even though we're proud, then God can't know what's going on. Does the Most High know? Does he have knowledge? Confident of unaccountability, they're carefree. If God doesn't care, then neither do we. God's perceived ignorance makes their proud prosperity permissible. And so look at Asaph's conclusion in verse 13 and 14. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. An envy of prosperity, an ignorance of deity, and so he thinks the vanity of purity. Why bother living for God if you can be proud and get away with it? My purity has not only been in vain, but it's been paid in suffering. See, the green-eyed beast in Asaph becomes a little bit of an Eeyore at this moment. My granny always used to read me A.A. Milne, so I think in terms of Winnie the Pooh. And Asaph gets his Eeyore on at this moment, doesn't he? He wallows in self-pity and in self-interest, totally glum, as he realizes his efforts of godliness have been repaid with the coins of affliction. He thinks, my faithfulness has been futile, my purity is pointless. And so Eeyore complains, how is it that the wicked get a crown and the godly seem to get a cross? How is it that the sinners are singing for joy and the saints are sighing in suffering? How is it that the violent get rest, but peace is denied to the peacemakers? What is that? Asaph says. The prosperous wicked, the ignorant God, and so the wasted life? See, when you see the green-eyed monster, what you realize is his eyes aren't really on other people and what they have, but his eyes are actually turned in upon himself. Yes, he sees their hands full of wealth, but in reality, he is the one wallowing in self-interest and self-pity. Is God good to Israel? To those who are pure in heart? Is he? Have you been there? You felt that? Reading Psalm 73 as a mirror, do you see the kind of green eyes reflecting back at you? I've been there. 
Maybe for you, it's the guy at work who's just immoral, gobby, doesn't do any work, tells crude jokes, but for some reason, everyone loves him. Everyone wants to be his friend. Everyone wants him to be the one who laughs at their jokes. And you're the one who everyone hates and avoids because once every now and then you try and talk about Jesus. They despise you. They love him. What is that? Maybe it's the fact that you're friends. Their kids are doing really well and their kids love them as parents because they spoil them rotten and every Sunday they take them to their tennis club and their football club and their friends' parties and all this kind of thing. And yet your kids are getting to the point where they despise you because you on a Sunday are dragging them to church. What is that? Maybe you see the couple who, or not even a couple, the man and wife, or the man and woman, who on a one-night stand get pregnant and you've been married for 10 years and you've had three miscarriages. What is that? Or maybe you're a missionary and you've had a really hard six months, you know, loneliness, setbacks, discouragements, and you come back on furlough and all the peers you had when you were back home, you know, they've increased in the property ladder and they've increased on the housing ladder and every ladder and you feel like you're playing snakes and ladders and you land on a snake every single time. Been there? Maybe it's the fact that they've bought their second home and your home is constantly getting broken into by the very people you're trying to share the gospel with. What is that? See, we need to beware of the banana skin of envy. We doubt God's goodness to us and we hate his goodness to others. There is something perverted in my heart that hates it when others succeed and loves it when others fail. That's the green-eyed beast, isn't it? I'm the beast controlled by the reins of my envious, covetous heart, and it is totally worldly, and it is totally now. I want it now. And if you look at how Asaph responds, look at verse 16. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. His head's a mess, it's mashed, it's oppressive. That's intensified by verse 15 when he says, if I'd spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. Here's the agony of leadership. When you're a leader of God's people or a leader of a ministry, you suffer with all the same temptations, all the same troubles, all the same agonies as every single other person, but you feel if you admit that, you might cause others to stumble. And so Asaph is in agony. He's cut up inside. He's he's slipping into temptation and he feels he cannot tell anyone. The agony of Christian leadership. Until, verse 17, do you see that word? Till. Here's the pivot verse. Here's the moment of transformation in the psalm. Till. I was oppressed till I entered the sanctuary of God. He goes from slipping like a senseless beast to being steadied by God's hand. Now, where does clarity come from from Asaph? It doesn't come from endless introspection. All right? 
It doesn't come from many of the youth of today that seem to say, I will find myself if I go traveling around the world. No. It comes from entering the sanctuary of God. The place of clarity is engaging with the God of eternity. When God's singer enters God's sanctuary, the senseless beast becomes a man of understanding. See, when Asaph views his circumstances from the earthly observatory of his own situation, it is oppressive to him. But when he views the same circumstances from the satellite of God's perspective, he gains understanding. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. From slipping like a beast, he is steadied by God's hand when he enters the sanctuary of God. And what does he see? Well, again, verse 17, until I understood their final destiny. It gets a little bit ghost of Christmas future at this point. God says, let me take you on a journey. And let me show you the very people you are envying, let me show you their future destiny. Or don't just see the time-limited earthly prosperity. Let me show you their earthly destiny, their eternal destiny. And the God of eternity future takes Asaph almost in a fly through hell. You envy them, Asaph? You envy these people whose earthly prosperity is nothing more than a mere dream, a a fantasy. When when my wife had our baby, Ruben, she was 13 days late, which was, for her, agony, of course. For me, it was mildly irritating. I I like to be on time. (laughs) But on our due date, the day of our due date, I had the most oppressive nightmare. It was on our duty, exactly. And um, I woke up irritated, kind of that kind of sweating, crying, really anxious, basically imagining the worst case scenarios in labor. And that happened for the next three nights. Three nights of successive oppressive nightmares. It was horrendous. Do you know what the good news was? just a dream see most of my dreams I can't even remember when I wake up the next morning they're like that aren't they I remember having a dream it was weird but the details have gone Asaph why do you envy those whose lot in life is but a dream it's gone It won't even be remembered. Why envy the wealth of dreamland? Especially when you see the eternal destiny. Why envy them? See, it is easy for the wicked to interpret God's patient forbearance as his ignorance, but Asaph, you must remember, God is not ignorant. He knows. And God is not unjust. He will punish 
And beyond this world, there will be a deserved destiny for those outside of Christ. Sure, this world may have been a comfortable dream, but their eternity will not be a horrible nightmare because nightmares aren't real. It will be a horrible reality. Why envy them? Now, commentators debate what Aesop saw. Till I entered the sanctuary. Where did he go in the sanctuary? What did he say? It may have been that he just went into the holy court where he would have been used to leading God's people in song. It may have been that he was given an insight further into the holy structure of the tabernacle or the temple. We don't know. Maybe it's what he saw in 2 Chronicles 5 when him and others were privileged to see the temple filled with the glory of God. We don't know. Here's what we do know. Whatever Asaph saw, we see clearer. And whatever Asaph saw, we see something better. Because as New Testament, New Covenant believers, we don't just see the shadow that he saw, we see the reality. We don't just see the blood of a goat, we see the blood of Christ. We don't just enter a building, we enter heaven itself. We don't come time and time again through multiple priests with multiple sacrifices. We come once for all, through Christ. You see, for us, we don't so much come to a place of clarity, we come to a person of clarity. See, where does someone who is slipping like a senseless beast come to find clarity. You come to Christ, right? You see the glory of God in the face of Christ as it's displayed in the Word of God, and He brings clarity, particularly in that moment of the cross, where you see Christ, not only who lived the perfect life of righteousness, but who dies death in my unrighteousness, so that as I die with him, I am raised with him. That's the glory of God. Why would I envy the wicked when I have the glory of Christ? But in the cross, you not only see something which engenders faith, you also see something which induces fear. Because in the cross, you see the destiny of the wicked. In the cross, you see the outcome of those who will die in their sin. See, either Christ will suffer hell on your behalf on the cross, or you will suffer hell for your own sins. And so when we are tempted to envy the full hands of the world, the place we need to come is the person and the work of Jesus Christ, to see his glory in the cross and resurrection. It should make us sing, and it should make us tremble. It should produce faith, and it should produce fear. See, that's the negative side of this comparison. Don't covet a dream. Wake up! See what you have in Christ. That's where he goes next. Verses 23 to 26, the positive side of the comparison Let's read these verses again. Verse 23, Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. 
See, Asaph had made a wrong comparison, and so God enters the scene and says, listen, compare on the negative side the final destiny of the wicked with on the positive side the eternal portion of the pure. And Asaph says, whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire besides you. Derek Kidner, in his beautiful little commentary in the Psalms, calls this grasped, guided glory. That's a little bit like that golden chain, the unbreakable chain you get in Romans 8. All those God foreknew, he predestined. All those he predestined, he called. All those called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. You're safe because it's all of God. All those he grasps, he will guide. And all those he guides, he'll guide all the way to glory. Asaph, you may feel like you are slipping, but God will grasp and guide you all the way to glory. He gets to the point where he says, earth has nothing I desire besides you. Here's the truth Asaph has realized. When God has me by the hand, my hands are full. I could have nothing else. But if God has me by the hand, my hands are full. See, ask yourself a very simple question. What has changed between the start and the end of Psalm 73? What's changed? Circumstantially, nothing. Nothing's changed. The wicked are still proud and prospering. Asaph is still sad and suffering. But somehow he's moved from Eeyore to Tigger. Why? Circumstances haven't changed. But his mind has come to a place of clarity where he is reminded what he has in his God. God is my portion. Takes us back to those sections of the Old Testament which, when it comes to it, and you kind of read through the Bible in a year, it's the temptation of the bit to skim when they're just divvying up the land. You know those hard sections of the Old Testament? They get this bit and they get that bit and over that river, that's yours. The Levites are told, or you don't get anything. You don't, don't get any land. This is what you get. The Lord is your portion. The Lord is your inheritance. The Lord for you is enough. He satisfies. He quenches. He is your everything. See, ask yourself this question. When your flesh and your heart fail, and they will, right? Will a house or a possession or your family or your looks or your car or your friends be the strength of your heart and your portion forever? No. But when God is the strength of your heart and your portion forever, when your flesh and your heart do fail, you gain. Because although to live is Christ, to die is gain. Which is better by far. The new creation is no dream. But based on the resurrection, the physical resurrection of Jesus, 
it is a huggable hope. It is a physical certainty. It is no dream or fantasy. And so we can say, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My hands are full. Christ is enough. He's my everything. And if I have him, I lack no good thing. So I can have health, or I can't have health, but I still have joy because I still have Jesus. And I can have family, or I might not have family, but if I still have Jesus, then I still have joy. Or I may have a job, I might lose my job, but if I still have Jesus, I still have joy. I may have everything, I may have nothing. I may have health, I may have cancer. I may have a husband, I may be a widow. But if I still have Jesus, I still have joy. When God has me by the hand, my hands are full. Grasped, guided to glory. Now, that's Psalm 73. It's great, isn't it? Why speak on Psalm 73 at a missionary convention? Why speak about envy and covetousness at a missionary convention. Let me give you two very quick reasons. Number one, it can be a particular temptation for those in ministry to be envious of those not in ministry. If you're in ministry, you're nodding your head right now. It looks like the easy, the carefree, the burdenless life. Every Monday morning, after a hard week and a grueling Sunday, I wake up and pretty much the first thing I do is write my letter of resignation. Every single Monday. And then I open the papers, hoping that there's a gardening job available. Gardening just seems to be a nice job when you're in ministry. It's the greener grass, I guess. Um, Apparently, the most common career for people to go into when they get burnt out in the ministry is... Any guesses? Gar- not, I don't think it's gardening. I've heard something different. Apparently, it is construction. Do you know why? Quantifiable, tangible results. It is very easy for those in ministry to align yourself with the ver- worldview of the first half of Psalm 73. I'm suffering. Everyone else is cool. The the eyes go green, the monster grows strong, and Eeyore takes the mic. And it's very easy in ministry to let that envy make you slip into habits of sinfulness. See, ministers, missionaries are no different from anyone else. They are faced with the same temptations, the same struggles, and maybe in that moment of envy when you are at an end of yourself emotionally and in terms of strength, that is a moment where you wallow in self-pity and maybe start to self-medicate with things that used to work before you were a Christian. Whether it's spend some money on some nice things or whether it's try and pacify your emotions with alcohol or whether it's indulge yourself in pornography or whether it's just wallow in bitterness or whatever it might be, it is very easy from envy to make you slip into other sins. And that is why we need Psalm 73 to grab us and say, 
you need to enter the sanctuary of God. You need to come to the person of clarity. You need to come again to Jesus and know that the inner beast within you will want to run. And the green eyes will not want to look in the mirror. But you need to wrestle yourself and bring yourself to the point of understanding and clarity. You need to allow your heart to stir you into action. You know that horrible moment when you're walking down the street or down some steps and you slip? You know that, or even when you're, you're sleeping and you feel like you're falling? You know that moment? What does your heart do in that moment? It races, right? And your whole body tenses. I hope that for some of us this morning... Psalm 73 causes that sense of feeling like you're slipping. I want the Spirit to be causing your heart to beat faster so that it would stir you into action, to again bring yourself to the person of clarity, to see the glory of Christ's cross for your salvation, to see the destruction of those who walk away from Christ, and to bring you back to the point where you say, if I have Christ, I lack nothing. Don't give in to sin. Maintain your innocence. Maintain your integrity. Maintain your purity. And we must repent if we've learned, maybe in the last few months, the, um, the unhelpful secret of looking fruitful on the outside whilst being unfaithful on the inside. See, serving while slipping is possible, but it's not excusable. We need to come back to Christ. That's the first reason. Psalm 73 helps at a missionary convention. Here's the second reason. I think one of the reasons why many people don't get engaged with mission is that we don't see those outside of Christ as needy, but our envy means we think that we need what they have. That's to say, we don't have compassion for them as those in spiritual poverty because we envy their material poverty. You see, covetousness will always lead to disobedience to the Great Commission. That's to say, our covetous hearts will be one of the biggest obstacles to us being faithful to Jesus in taking the gospel to the world. If we envy the world, why on earth would we tell the world of Christ? The envy says, the world has something I feel like I need. The gospel says, you have something that the world needs. We don't think we have something they need. We think they have something we need. It's one of my fears. I don't know your context. I know Scotland. It's one of my fears in Scotland that in our churches the unspoken subliminal message that is being passed on to the next generation is that life is all about the accumulation of worldly stuff. Now our churches talk about the gospel, we sing about the gospel and the need for mission, but our bank balances, our property portfolios, our cars, our holidays, our wardrobes, our lives are communicating to our children that we are more concerned about keeping up with the Joneses than we are about following Jesus. And envy is hamstringing our obedience to the Great Commission. The more content Christ's people are in God, 
the more the world will hear of Christ. Contentment will fuel the Great Commission. Envy will stall it. And so we need to enter the sanctuary of God to come to Christ and see the destiny of the wicked in the cross of Christ. We need to come to the cross and find our contentment in him and realize there is nothing in them to covet or be envious of, but there is in them a desperate need to hear the gospel. Covetousness will destroy evangelism. Contentment will fuel it. So tomorrow morning, if you're able to come back, we're going to jump into Exodus and dig deep into commandment number 10 and get from covetousness to contentment because that will fuel our mission. Amen? Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would continue to engage and transform our hearts to the point where we can say with integrity, earth has nothing I desire besides you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.